0: Hi and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature Podcast with me, Chris Jordan. This week, I am talking to Zach Groschel. Zach is an instructional coach, teacher in the American school system, has a PhD in instructional design and hosts the Progressively Incorrect Podcast. I've listened and loved Zach's podcast for a long time now, particularly as the first season deals with the tension of progressive ideas and ideologies around inquiry-based teaching, as well as the strengths of direct instruction as a pedagogy. For me, these are two approaches that a teacher delivering the PYP, MYP, or DP for IB has to wrestle with on a daily basis, as well as any teacher operating in any school where competing pedagogies are prevalent. In the episode, we discuss what direct instruction—sorry, what direct instruction and inquiry-based teaching mean in practice. Whether there's scope for inquiry to play some part in a unit, given that topics such as the information age, masculinity, ways of life can be explored according to students' standing interests, experiences, or passions. How Zach feels about suggestions that relying solely on direct instruction and not culturally responsive education is narrowly western eurocentric and even racist if there's a disconnect in international and state schooling with regard to improving teaching and learning if seeking guidance as an international teacher about how to improve teaching what zach would suggest teachers start with and lastly when implementing an instructional coaching culture in a school what are the most important things to consider and prioritize at the outset Thanks so much to Zach for weighing in on what I believe is a hugely important set of topics for international teachers or teachers of IB curriculum more specifically. His podcast is linked to in the show notes and is below and is well worth a listen for people working in any walk of education. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. Now. Um, okay, Zach. So given all the conjecture in your mind, what does direct instruction mean in practice? And what does inquiry-based teaching or learning mean in practice?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I'll I guess I'll start by saying that I started as an inquiry teacher, right? Uh and my my whole university experience was around the idea of inquiry based learning. Uh, I had this professor who, um, for science, for example, had us go uh, home with a recipe for how to bake cookies, came back to school with the baked cookies, compare the cookies to each other. And that was meant to be a provocation, as they would say in the PYP, Mm. a provocation that would sort of launch us into an investigation around genetic inheritance um uh the problem the problem pretty immediately was that right we uh, a lot of energy got spent doing that and the connection was really tenuous Mm. and yeah uh uh afterwards right we would we would we would go into an investigation the entire time not not quite understanding where we were going or uh not really having the background knowledge to be able to 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 enjoy the ride the professor was certainly enjoying the ride right but we you know uh, we as as teachers having this simulated to us uh did not enjoy it because we didn't uh we didn't know what we were doing most of the time and when i was a teacher i sort of took all those lessons because i don't i don't try to be a contrarian and on purpose i try to listen to other people right so i took all of those lessons and i brought it to my own teaching and i would for math, I would put out posters on the floor and so on. Have students try to try to tackle problems that uh, were uh, really the end goal of the unit. Uh, I would have those at the very start be um, be exercises for students, and students would struggle with them. I would circulate around. He, you know, students would ask me if I could give them some help, and I would kind of, you know, ask them to you know ask a friend, or I'd give a very very weak 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 hint. Hoping that maybe they would figure it out for themselves. Um, now, I've I've been told that that's just a caricature of inquiry-based learning, and it's not actually what real inquiry-based learning is. But I created an entire podcast, which you tell me you listen to, mm-hmm. uh, trying to explore this, <laughs> trying to explore this entire idea. And uh, there are just so many definitions, and there's so much there's so much vagueness around inquiry-based learning compared to what I will now define, <laughs> compared to explicit instruction. Yeah. Uh, explicit instruction is a mature methodology. It's one that has been around for a long, long time. And it's one, in my view, is backed by a mountain of evidence. And when I start to say the characteristics, many of them are ones that you, people will be familiar with, but some not. Uh, the first bit is really uh, of explicit instruction is making sure that the teacher... Uh, is ensuring that only the essential information is presented, and all of the irrelevant information is excluded. Right. So we're going to make sure we capture attention, sustain attention. Often that means having students facing the source of information always. Like right. <laughs> um, and the teacher will use techniques like modeling, like feedback. But really, the main bit of explicit instruction is making sure students have sufficient practice to be able to um, achieve learning goals. And these goals are predetermined. They're determined by the school or by the teacher, right? And the teacher will use things like formative assessment to sort of move students forward, perhaps at a certain point, use differentiation to create small groups. Uh, as part of a, a model that, in the United States and around the world, we we call it MTSS or RTI, right? We use we we use we basically edu- uh, explicit instruction is a teacher led system that uses a variety of uh, techniques to get students to think about the essential information and exclude the irrelevant information. And um, when when I when I go on these debates. Uh, uh, on, on Twitter and so on, I will, I'll usually just give them Rosenshine's principles of instruction, which is just a paper that's free and easy to read. And I'll say, this is explicit instruction. Uh, if you want it to be briefer, I will, uh, explain it to you in a few sentences. Or if you want it longer, I'll give you the Hughes et al. 2017 paper, which talks about the historical sort of, um, uh, you know, traces back to the beginnings of, of explicit instruction looks at various definitions and finds 70 percent, 80 percent of the definitions share the same uh techniques so that's what i would say to stop this podcast off and where are we gonna go from here chris
0: yeah <laughs> yeah i mean you've the, the word that i always come back to with inquiry-based learning or inquiry-based teaching or whatever is like it's just amorphous like i i'm really i try to um I think we're really blessed as teachers, particularly English teachers, like, uh, as I am, that we've had like an explosion in books and podcasts and really accessible kind of research. Like you say, the Rose and Shine stuff, um, I kind of read that maybe six, five, six years ago and it's, and it's like, like you say, it's, it can be condensed into maybe what? Three pages, like a p- three page PDF or a five page PDF. It's just fantastic. And I, I try and show the same dedication to inquiry. Cause I want inquiry to work, not just because I'm, you know, expected to as an NYP or or DP IB teacher, but like I genuinely, you know, I, I I get inspired by it. I listen to these people who are kind of advocates for inquiry. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I can get on board with the message or the philosophy or whatever. I listen to like I've listened to an interview with Kath Murdoch and James Mannion from a year or two ago. And, you know, it's interesting. But then in that particular interview, they're saying that I think Kath Murdoch, who is a big Australian, you know, educator for, for anyone who's not heard of her, but more kind of primary based. She talks about the idea of like front-loading information. And she says that she doesn't like that term. But then if I look in the IB literature, it will say some front-loading of information is always necessary. And then if I read something by Trevor McKenzie, who, you know, fantastically is like an English teacher doing inquiries, a stance, he will talk quite, you know, he's a big advocate for front loading. But when I interviewed him and it was a fantastic interview that I enjoyed, I, I tried to push the issue of what is front loading. And I'm not sure I came away with it with a fantastic definition of what it is. So like you said, I think your fantastic kind of first series of the podcast that that you've produced where you're having the kind of discussions with your colleague or former colleague about what it is I always feel like the direct instruction stuff I mean it's almost nominative determinism but like the direct instruction stuff is really clear and the inquiry stuff is quite amorphous I, I can never really kind of put my finger on it and I can't there is. I, I did a, a master's recently about inquiry implementation in my personal school. And when I read the data, there was a study, and, and to be fair, it was an IB-funded study into inquiry um, that you can find on the IB website um, by Pullman and someone else. It's terrible, I can't remember the name. But um, from like 2019, 2020 maybe. And they, their conclusions were that the IB needs to do more to define what inquiry is in respective subjects, and also gives more support about how to teach with inquiry. And I thought that was quite damning, given the fact that that's been a stance that the IB is supposed to have inculcated or had had at the heart of their curriculum since the eighties or the nineties. So yeah, I I kind of, um, I completely echo everything about, about what you said there. Um, It kind of leads me on to like my next question. Go on, Zach. Sorry, were you going to respond there?
1: Well, let 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 me try to give a stab for a few people, right? Uh, And I'll tell you the problems with each of them, (laughs) and why I don't really consider my why don't consider myself an inquiry teacher at all anymore. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you I'll give you a, a smattering of a few different ones, right? Inquiry based learning could be uh, the entire cycle that an expert does in their field. And I say that as a, I, I did my PhD dissertation, right? That was an inquiry project. And essentially, after I did a bunch of coursework and gained some knowledge, um, I was asked to do a dissertation. And that dissertation lasted a year, right? And so in school, Uh, you can apply that to science and you could say you, you, we're going to do experiments just like a science, a scientist does you in, in history. You can say that you're, we're going to give you a, you know, have you find a bunch of primary sources and synthesize them and create your own, uh, historical review. Right. Uh, in math, we can have you creating your own proofs. Right. The issue should be pretty obvious to, I think to most people that. The thing is, is that students are training to become those things. They are not those things. They're not those. They don't have those careers. It's just like you can use a car analogy, right? That when when my dad and mom, uh, they both taught me to drive. When they taught me to drive, of course, I I was I was uh, watching them drive my entire childhood. But also, they I took a driver's education course, which you have to take here. And my parents showed me all the parts, and they sat right next to me, and they guided me. And I wasn't being a driver at the beginning; I was learning to drive, and slowly, through scaffolding, I was able to to drive on my own. This is the truth with anything else, right? You don't do the end the the, the end goal of the career as a first grader or <laughs> as a fifth grader uh you're learning about those things and it requires a teacher to explicitly teach you all the things that maybe those scientists take for granted when they're doing it as part of their careers yeah. um the other the other uh, uh definition that comes up with inquiry based learning is simply just exploring something it's just a learning event of exploring stuff and so that's where you get the productive struggle the productive failure uh, you get even people claiming that pre-testing is inquiry-based learning. You get people saying that asking lots of questions is yeah. inquiry-based learning, right? Uh, and of course, with explicit instruction, you're having students work on things independently. You're asking them lots of questions. You may even develop an inquiry mindset, which is my third one, just that the teacher values what the students think and doesn't shut them down and correct them every two seconds, Right. So, I, I try to be fair with it, but like you said, everybody just keeps changing their definition or or, or their meaning midway through the debate, and you can't really you it's you can't really uh, gain any ground in those type of conversations.
0: Like, yeah, I agree fundamentally. I think the driving analogy is such a good one. I think particularly for adults because it you know it it, it communicates like a learning kind of experience that we've all had like relatively recently, I suppose, in our adult lives. The front loading thing is the thing I always come back to. And it's like, in that analogy, the front loading is all the experiences that you would have to learn how to do every kind of, you know, function, process, movement in a car. And that kind of betrays to me the definition of front loading front loading kind of connotes this idea of like you know this is the really foundational information that you know you just got to get that out of the way and then you can explore blah 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 but to me that's everything that's like everything that you would need to then become like a driver like that that that's not front loading that's just loading that's like everything that is kind of Uh, needed to be proficient in that particular skill and then once you've got that it's like anything else is extra if you want to go on and become like a really clever person in terms of how you conserve fuel or become a race car driver or become someone who's you know a, a truck driver or something like that surely that's when this inquiry would then start to you know, occur because you have the sufficient amount of knowledge needed to become proficient in something. Like if you were, you know, a scientist or a mathematician or whatever, and then like you did with your dissertation or your PhD, you can go off in a direction that is not necessarily foundational or fundamental, but it's kind of an offshoot of that core skill. And this is the tricky thing. I think with inquiry, it's like, if you're saying to me that inquiry is the whole process, that yeah, I have an issue with that. If it, if the inquiry is like an exploration and it's kind of, yeah, to, to, to not labor the point, I completely agree with you that the definition keeps changing depending on who you ask. Um, but that does kind of segue into my my next point, which is that in terms of what you just said, like disciplinary knowledge, like what it takes to be an English student, a scientist, a mathematician, a driver. Like I'm very hesitant to accept that disciplinary knowledge is best taught in any other way than direct instruction. But, and we are kind of, you know, committing that crime of changing what inquiry means here, but looking for a place for inquiry to happen. If, if I was teaching in a thematic way, and that is kind of the trend now in English, not to say that it will always be the trend. I do think it is a good approach. Is there a scope for inquiry to play some part in a unit when the topics are things like the information age or masculinity or travel or ways of life or love of literature or something like that? I mean, can they be explored according to students' standing interests, experience, or passions? Because that those three words come up a lot in inquiry. You're meant to engage students' interests, experience, and passions. Like in practice, like in my own classroom, this kind of means that there would be pockets of inquiry, whatever that means, that allow students to apply what I've taught them, this front loading, to an to to an area or a direction of their own choosing. Is that clear, or do I need to give like an example?
1: No, I I, I totally understand, right? I mean, the short answer, the short answer to the question is at the end. <laughs> right whatever yes. whatever the inquiry whatever the inquiry based thing is and like you said you might be we 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 might be mutilating the word inquiry cuz now they're inquiring into something that i have uh, with the tools that i explicitly taught them yeah. which is in my definition the entire sequence of explicit instruction yeah. right so uh, but uh, when are, when is it time for students to do something that you didn't explicitly teach them to do or when is it time for students to combine two things that you did explicitly teach them to do but independently without, without with, with 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 relatively less guidance right mm-hmm. All at the end and um that might mean that the the project or the investigations uh, are delayed to to some inquiry-based learning folks' taste. It may mean that these are much briefer and 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 much more highly scaffolded. They may seem like to 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 people that are really into that kind of loosey-goosey discovery stuff. That really the students are quote-unquote regurgitating things that they. <laughs> just got taught, because mm. what they're doing is applying it, right? But for me, that's where, that's where it belongs. And I, and this isn't to kill students' uh, interests and passions. I actually believe it enhances them yeah. because, for example, I'm sure the listeners may have heard of Genius Hour or Investing uh, Time, 20% time. It's sort of a fad that kind of is almost out the door. But what it is, is that students are given a huge chunk of time during the week to explore whatever they want to do. And uh, I led this type of thing for many years because my school made me. Um, but uh, students would come into these projects not even knowing what they were interested in pursuing. All the boys would do this sort of stereotypical, I like soccer. <laughs> All the girls wanted to learn the sewing machine because we had two sewing machines. Right. And and really they had no idea about screen printing. They had no idea about uh metalwork and woodwork and all different types of things. You'd think, yeah, students will be interested in this. They didn't have the, the scope of their knowledge and their experience was limited to a a small set of experiences that each kid brought to the room. And 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 so really, when you talk about front loading, we're talking about what kinds of experiences can I show you so that I can build up Hmm. some personal interests in these different things. And so that when you go ahead and choose what you're going to do, you go into it informed, you go into having like, I can't even pick. I have all of these options, right? It always happens at the end. And that's the whole metaphor of scaffolding, which inquiry based folks, (laughs) I, I, I need some whatever, you know, but, uh, these inquiry-based folks tend to mutilate the scaffold, right? Right, which is you put up these 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 supports, and then you slowly take them away. You don't just start with the with with the whole house. You build up from the foundation, right? So uh, that that would be my answer.
0: Yeah, I think uh, the I think one one issue that I've kind of faced in the past is well, because like i am always sort of like trying to find the balance between these two things and i know well now maybe this is unfair but like i think if i pitch this idea of okay we're gonna do this direct instruction stuff let's say for example right if the unit is like i want to teach kids you know first first unit in year seven um my priorities are getting them to understand like context like the difference between context of interpretation and context of composition word classes basic story structure of like overcoming the monster or something like you know these basic things which they will not understand um yeah i can do a check for understanding and like maybe five percent of the class might know some of these things but let's say the majority of them do not know them i need to teach those things and then if i've got this kind of 20%, 25%, maybe less than that really. Opportunity at the end for them to kind of go away, explore. You know, I'm I'm teaching in an international school, so it's um go and find a cultural hero that um we don't make movies about anymore. We don't write stories about any more from your particular culture and let's write the story on them. So a lot of the kids are from Hong Kong or China. Let's not do the monkey king because everyone knows journey to the West. Go and find another, you know, hero from from China, blah, blah, blah. blah. Now, like I, if I pitch that to someone like, I mean, this might be an unfair kind of representation, but like someone like David Didao in the UK, who's an English teacher or Adam Boxer, who's a science teacher in the UK. I feel like they're Criticism of that would be opportunity cost. While the kids are researching these characters, they could be more deeply ingraining the skills that you've taught them or the knowledge that you've taught them or blah, 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 blah. So it always comes down to opportunity cost. And I think that is that is the issue with inquiry-based learning as a whole. Like if you have an eight-week unit purely again whatever inquiry based learning is but you're kind of allow- allowing them to discover it for themselves or explore it themselves versus a classroom next door where 80% of it is direct instruction you know it's it's the opportunity cost there is is stark in my opinion like you're, you're the, the the I would want my child to be in the latter class but then i feel like you can take it to extremes like i read an english book called um explicit instruction in English, I think by a guy called Tom Needham in the UK. And he listed three things at the beginning of the book that the book would be good for. And none of them really touched on student interest, student passion or student experiences. And I completely take your point that like, if you ask kids, what are you into? They often don't know. like, They can't articulate it. Like if you ask me, what am I into? Like, I think I would find it hard to articulate it in the moment. But there is, I do think like some of these inquiry teachers, like Trevor McKenzie specifically has like stuff in his books about how to allow students to understand what their passions are and they'll bring it out of them and they'll reflect on, you know, what they're into, which I do think is possible. I do think you can sit there and kind of have students reflect on what are you really interested in? Like if you had an hour to yourself, what would you do? Blah, blah, blah. But again, (laughs) the problem I have with that is just because you're interested in something doesn't mean, like, like I found mathematics really difficult in school. I had to work really hard, and I got a tutor that my mum could barely afford to to try and pass my exams. But if the teacher sat me down, and went right, what are you really interested in? And it's like, mm, I quite like, you know, football, the EPL. I quite like going to the gym and stuff. If the teacher then went, okay, in terms of probability, we're gonna work out, you know, all these probability kind of things based on you know, the English Premier League, I think I'd find that there'd be a novelty for it for about 10 minutes. But when the really hard work begins of like understanding all the different kind of like moves and formulas and whatever of probability, the novelty of it being something to do with something I'm interested in would would vanish very, very quickly. And I think like anything, deep work is required to really understand a particular skill. It doesn't matter if it's about something that you're interested in or passionate in that might add like 5% buy-in, but like anything, I think you have just got to kind of instill confidence in the kids and, and you know, positive reinforcement and all that stuff. I don't know, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going on and on now. Um, the, um, the next question I wanted to ask is this is something that came up when I was doing the masters. Um, and it's a book I read called street data. Uh, by Shane Safira and Jamila Duggan. And um, I don't think this is necessarily a criticism of direct instruction, but I do think it's in support of some kinds of inquiry-based learning. Um, so how do you feel about like suggestions that come from books like Street Data that rely on solely on direct instruction and not, as they put it, culturally responsive education means that, again, in their words... We continue to base policy and success frameworks on a data set that is narrowly Western, Eurocentric, and racist. So that's taken from page 13 of Street Data. Like, how would you, how do you kind of um, respond to that kind of observation? I mean, I
1: think it, I think it represents a certain level of extremism. I mean, first of all, right? Uh I I I I've read the book because it was required reading, uh, mm. over here. And um the you know, it's sort of uh an ode to it's sort of a recycling in a lot of ways of what we could call progressive education, right? Which my podcast is called Progressively Incorrect. Progressive is has nothing to do with progressive politics, right? Uh, it's a a sort of a, a it's a belief system around the idea that the child uh, is really that the, the the child should be leading their learning because children are mostly born pretty pure and that the external world uh, needs to kind of get out of the way and let them uh direct and and lead their learning. You can think of Piaget's children going around the garden and him, him observing them and them uh, uh you know extracting information from the outside world but connecting it to their prior knowledge, right? Um that's sort of the sort of the romantic view, right? And if you go through that book, there's a lot of references to Paulo Freire and 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 so on. You know, it's Pedagogy of the oppressed, just sort of another sort of branch of this whole thing. Um I think it's, I think it's kind of, what's the best word? I think it's, I think it's kind of wackadoodle is what I would say that is th- that, that idea. I was just on a, a parent uh, podcast uh, for Muslim parents. We have a lot of Muslim parents here, right? And, um, the, the interviewer, uh, asked me, he said, so when my kids are after school, they go to Islamic class and they sit in rows. And the, the teacher has been chanting back these verses and learning the Quran by rote, right? And he goes, so oh, isn't it culturally responsive to be uh, responsive to Muslim students? Cause that's how they learn, right? Yeah. And you sort of go down, you sort of start going down these very strange paths with like, oh, wait. So, you know, right now you're in Hong Kong. I was in China. It's, it's very well known, the sort of Chinese, um, uh, way of teaching is uh, yeah. using a teacher teacher-led direct instruction right so do all of our uh, Asian students of sort of East Asian students learn a certain way and are we going down the path of learning styles in a sense or are we ourselves being racist by thinking there's a mechanism in each of these different cultures heads that they were born with that sort of directs their attention and directs their learning in a certain way all of pretty much nonsense. Uh it it the truth is we have just, just like we have digestive systems that are similar, um but differ in some ways. Some people are gluten intolerant and lactose intolerant, uh mm-hmm. our, our 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 digestive systems are all pretty much the same. And if they came, it would be it, it would be crazy because all of the organs all the different organs. So if each of us had a different digestive system, each Interacts with the digestive system. They interacts with the digestive system. Would also have to be. Our cognitive systems are are highly similar. And the thing that I, I believe uh, is that we uh, we evolved to learn from other people. We 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 evolved to learn from our parents. Look up to them. Imitate them. Uh, acquire our first language very quickly. Uh, and soon we get to school and there's all this knowledge out there, knowledge that's not white or Eurocentric or, or racist, but is the world's knowledge, mathematics and science, things that, uh, the world uses. And those things are best be taught in the way that, uh, matches with how we evolve to acquire knowledge, but also that's fast, efficient, effective, that, you know, slowly you know, brings information to the naive learner, right? We're talking about children who do not have a lot of prior knowledge, connecting little bits of knowledge with a little bit of prior knowledge they have slowly, sequentially. That's the type of teaching kids need. And we understand this when it comes to special education because when the kids start to fail in mainstream education, they go to special education teachers, right? And those teachers put them in small groups and they teach this material in such an unambiguous, clear and concise way. And they give them lots of repetitions because they understand that these kids probably have lower working memory. They struggle with attention. I've got to gain their attention. I've got to really break this stuff down. For some reason, when we get to the, the private international schools, which I worked in for many years, uh, and we don't have all of these external measures of achievement, We have really bright kids with really bright parents and we start to forget, uh, really how important it is for our struggling learners to get explicit instruction. And so, yeah, (laughs) I reject the entire premise of that, of, (laughs) of, uh, that, 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 that a really good teaching method that we evolved to use with each other is somehow, uh, not applicable, uh, to, to the vast, to to, to humanity right i Mm. think that's nonsense
0: i do like i you said it was required reading zach how come it was required reading where you were
1: um i mean that education education loves this
0: stuff right um so it wasn't like a state mandated thing
1: oh no no this was uh this was something it actually came in right before i came in mid year because of COVID and they said, Hey, we already read this. So I actually don't know what the discussion was. Uh, yeah, yeah. I read it. It's on my bookshelf. Yeah. Uh I have a great story. Uh there was a librarian at my uh uh not at my school but at a different school who um principal comes by and he said so I've just taken a bunch of street data he says and what I did was I asked all the kids uh what was their favorite specialist class and they all said PE. And he said, "Okay, what's your second favorite?" And they said, "Art." And he said, "Okay, what's your least favorite?" And they said, "Library." And so the librarian comes up to me and te- uh, she—I she, was just told I have the most boring class by this this school of an administrator. Yeah. And uh, I go to her lesson. She's teaching from the front, but she's reading these books. She's only got twenty minutes to teach and it's beautiful, it's interactive, the kids are all at the edge of their seat listening to the story, and then she has them check out books. Um, we're a sucker for this, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: you know what I mean? I I did, it's so funny, like it's, the, it's such an excellent segue into my next question there, what you talked about with the the international teaching scene. Cause it was, I, I, I had it passed to me as in almost the same way as you did where, I think they'd been given out to all the head teachers maybe in um, my particular foundation so there's like 22 schools in my foundation and I was having a meeting with um a previous kind of management person in my school just to make sure that my research would be okay for my masters and they said oh this is a book you should really read this is a book you should really read and they gave it to me I read it I was like okay yeah it's quite interesting I've never really heard um this kind of like the, the tone of it seemed, um, I dunno what the right, the right word is, but like, it, it felt, yeah, quite, a um, you know, it sort of required, you know, instant kind of reaction, it, a reactionary, I suppose reactionary tone is quite good. I I don't mean in that in a pejorative sense, but then. The, I kind of mentioned it to people that I'd read it, you know, in passing when you're trying to make small talk or like polite conversation in in the lift or at like an after work sort of um, soiree or whatever. And just like no one had actually read it. Like they, they'd been given out to like all the management and management had passed it on to other people. And and very few people, and they were very candid. They were just like, no, I didn't really read it. I didn't like this, that, and the other. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of... Yeah, I it it definitely kind of if you read the back of it, it's almost a call to arms. And I agree with you that in education, a lot of these books look great on like a a principal's shelf, and and lethal mutations can kind of I think you know I think some people did read it and but it's it's yeah i think it, it's problematic a lot of it what it's saying is problematic i think but um yeah I, um, but yeah as i said you kind of you said really nicely there into this kind of uh conversation about international and state education and i had a conversation with a, a fellow teacher a couple of months ago who's in bangkok after he he put something on twitter basically saying why is there so little conversation in international teaching about Improving teaching and learning often because the the curriculum changes so much with the IB or IGcse or whatever. There's lots of um, there's lots of what's the word kind of uh, resources being shared. It's like right, we've got this new kind of syllabus, we've got this new um, uh, scheme of work, uh, not scheme of work, this new kind of uh, exam spec. Who teaches what? Does anyone do photography? Does anyone do this? Does anyone do that? And that's really lovely, but there's very seldom any conversation about like best practice or teaching and learning. And to me, it seems like writing, podcasting, online debate, it really seems to emanate from outstanding educators in the public sphere. So, you know, you've got yourself, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I I think that you're in the public kind of sphere, but you've got Ollie Lovell in Australia. You've got, um, Craig Barton in the UK, like in my particular, like subject, you've got Jenny Webb um, who's who's an amazing teacher, but she's in the the, the public system. David Diadow's in the public system. Uh, Adam Boxer, that I have mentioned before, teaches science, but he's in the public system. Um, Action Jackson, even the, the you know someone who's a pastoral person, public system. Um, like are international schools in some countries or maybe all countries at risk of losing touch with educational development? Like the point that you just touched on, then that sometimes we forget. A lot of these students, very well-behaved, wealthy backgrounds, it's easy to slip into this kind of thing of like, oh, I'll give inquiry a go because no one's going to throw a chair at me. Or I'm going to give inquiry a go because my results always seem quite good when we get to the IGCSE or IBDP and forgetting all about the shadow education of tutoring and things like that, that every parent in my school or most parents can afford yeah are we are we at risk in international by way i mean me and my colleagues are we at risk of losing touch with what good teaching and learning is do you think
1: that's such that is such an interesting question i mean because for a while i was the one of the the the, i was i was like you i was one of the folks overseas who uh was at international school and and uh I was in the online debates, and essentially what they would do is we we'd have these discussions, and people would just Google me and find out I work at a at a at a private school overseas, and they just start dismissing uh, anything I had to say after that, right? Which is just like a form of ad hominem, right? You you don't listen to the you don't actually attack the the argument, you attack the person, and one of the things you can attack is their their, their resume right even now because my profile picture looks kind of young uh people assume I've you know uh I only I only taught for a couple of years or it says I'm an instructional coach so they think I immediately left the classroom right <laughs> even now it's still it's still I'm on shaky ground people will say that uh my school isn't as dangerous or is is poorly behaved as as I'll, as, as 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 I say it is I can't send them it because I don't want them to to email the school. So I send them a list of the 30 failing schools in my state. And I say, it's on here. You just have to trust me. <laughs> right. Um, but um, but uh to your point of like international education, it is quite it is quite a bubble, right? Uh I'm I'm sure you know um Kirschner, Sweller and Clark, the 2006 paper that I, I mention uh, quite a bit uh online paper for, for listeners who don't know about how uh, ever things on your own figure things out on your own really taxes work. and so it's much better to give the information upfront by using like worked examples process sheets and things like that i read this paper with my school i just asked the principal can i start reading articles with uh with my international teachers when i was overseas He said, Yeah, do whatever you want. You you know, you can use the library. Mm -hmm. And that was the first text because I wanted to inspire some debate. And dozens of people emailed him, apparently, saying that they didn't think that the text should be read. Mm But uh uh, based on the title, right? Based on the title alone. Uh, this doesn't belong in an ID school, right? So you got this bubble that you're in, and you've got this problem where probably not a lot of people are, are going to listen to you as an authority on state schools because they don't really trust you because they think you can't handle the classroom. And I say this, I was an international teacher for seven years and I had that same frustration. I'm like, dude, let me back in the classroom. I will manage a classroom. Mm. Um, it's a really interesting place to be. I wish there were more voices from international education, to be honest.
0: Mm, yeah, I think the 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 um, the paper that you're citing there about like uh, yeah, like inquiry-based learning, project-based learning, all those different ones yeah, is one that um, funnily enough, yeah, that's so weird that you say that. It, it wasn't me who shared it, but like a former colleague of mine shared it when they were implementing the MYP, maybe five, no, eight years ago, nine years ago and she was then uh vilified might be too strong a word but certainly the principal um kind of had them in the in the crosshairs of like you know slightly more observations of their lessons and slightly more um kind of questions as to you know what are your plans for next year in terms of cpd and stuff like that just yeah bizarre kind of um treatment around like any sort of skepticism when it comes to inquiry um but the I read, think-
1: read, open up your um sorry open up the uh, the ib uh i think it's principles in the practice or yeah. whichever whichever book it is yeah. depending on the thing open it up and, and and go to the first i think it's the first page where they yeah. say what did ib learner uh what the IB mission is, what the IB yep. learner is, right? Yeah, And yes. just start picking out words. Th- these folks are not the IB learners who reject...
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you have... Yeah. You have the learner, like the NYP learner profile. Yeah, I think one of them is open-minded. So already <laughs> you're done. Like another one is thinker. Another one is communicator. Yeah, it's so true. Um, But the... Um, I think it was literally last week I was kind of sat in, you know, waiting for my, uh, uh, son to finish his karate class. He's like four or five years old. And I was sat with another parent and she, it was such an interesting conversation. She, she found out that I was a teacher at the particular foundation I'm a teacher at and her son was at a primary school that, um, let's say is part of a trust or foundation or whatever that kind of, um, pushes inquiries like uh, PYP, PYP type of thing. And she sort of said she was being quite guarded at first. And I think the more she spoke to me, the more she opened up, but she said she had loads of reservations. So she was, uh, ethnically Chinese, um, went to school in, um, the, in Hong Kong and then went to the UK, maybe when she was a teenager. Came back, family in, in in Hong Kong. And obviously, like most Hong Kong people, they're, they're bilingual, their English is perfect. Her son, again, ethnically Chinese, her husband's Chinese. Um, they'd sent her sent him to a, a kind of Western British American, whatever style um uh, primary school. And she had major reservations about the fact that the the, the principal had basically said, we do not teach phonics. Um, we, you know, we're, we're discovery based, we're play based with this, with that. Um, and she sort of had major reservations about like him staying in this primary school and then going into the secondary school. But she said her time in primary school and secondary school was miserable. She said, because even though it was direct instruction, the teachers were you know, they would make them feel like they were nothing. They would, they would sort of say, you know, this isn't good enough, even if they were getting A's and A stars and all these things. And she might be romanticizing it or she might be kind of, you know, exaggerating how bad it was, but it it, it doesn't fall far away from the truth that I've heard before from like my own extended, like my in-laws and stuff like that, that, you know, the demands put on students in in local schools can be quite um, exacting um as well and she was like if only there was something in the middle if there only there was something in the middle i don't want him to go to a school where they reject phonics as a, a pedagogy but at the same time i don't want him to go to a school where he's being kind of uh, pilloried uh, if he's not learning every single fact on the piece of paper and i think this is the problem isn't it i think that you that, that, that is the debate in a nutshell in some ways the people on the inquiry side of things might see direct instruction as what she described, which is quite an outdated and very culturally specific form of direct instruction. And at the same time, kind of um, people on the direct instruction side might see inquiry as what she's describing in in this international school. But unfortunately, that is my perception of what happens in some international schools. Uh, And mine Included to a certain extent, I think you can get away with, you know, just 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 floating along with these kind of inquiry based. I don't even think they're that rigorously inquiry based. I think if you got like Trevor McKenzie or or Kath Murdoch or someone like that over, I don't know if they'd be singing the praises of what some teachers are doing. Like what what I observe or what I kind of hear is best practice in some classrooms. But because there's no checks and balances, there's no Ofsted, there's no state mandated whatever, there's just the IB check. And the IB check is kind of, you know, we're the customer at the end of the day, we're paying to use their product. So they're not going to come in and say, you are not going to use our product anymore realistically. And I think there's this really kind of um, vicious cycle of um, a lack of checks and balances where You know, you could be going into a classroom and and, and claiming it's inquiry, but I don't really see any learning going on, to be honest, whether it's inquiry or otherwise, like inquiry means actually kind of like delving into what's interesting or passionate or, to me, the students aren't engaged at all. And they've kind of, they've come up against a wall of resistance, um, extraneous load or like cognitive overload, and they're just doing something they shouldn't do. So it's a really interesting, yeah. I I mean, uh, for what it's worth, my conclusion was to the parent, I said, I would keep them like in a a school that purported to have, you know, inquiry and PYP, because you are going to have some teachers that are incredible at it, that know the value of some inquiry and some direct instruction. But I wouldn't, you know, if you've got the money, and this is a terrible thing to say, but like, if you've got the money, you've got to consider also like private tuition to kind of bolster... Because that is direct instruction, right? There's no there's no tutor in the world that's doing tutoring through inquiry. That is direct instruction. But yeah, crazy, crazy that I even have to have that conversation, to be honest. Um yeah. Um and you're
1: English, right? The- correct.
0: Yeah, correct.
1: Yeah. And so I think I, I from because I've had so many discussions with English educators. A lot of them are now my friends. We we need at research. Jeds, you know, kind <laughs> of mm. thing, right? Um, but I think that might be w- where y- you're being pulled in a different direction than I am, because yeah. you you lingering in the in the background of your uh schema it are the Michaelas and the Mossborns and these yeah. these trusts the, that are that these behavior hubs, the Tom Bennett's, right? Uh, you have this, um, you have you. you, 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 you need, you know, something to point to is like perhaps for me I, you know maybe for you uh this is too much mm. this is uh it's too fast paced it's too many knowledge organizers too much crammed into a year and so on uh it's the wild wild west over here chris yeah <laughs> it is nothing it's nothing like that every school is full of either bad trads, is what I would call them. I mean, they're doing really bad explicit instruction that I could never, I could never support. Or they're they're groovy progs and they're they're wasting time. They're giving lots of lots of movies and 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 Andy and uh, you know and all in between uh, because every teacher just kind of gets to do what they want to do. Every district does what they want to do. It's too big of a country. We famously have that anti intellectualism in america where you know our our sports are more important than our schools uh so (laughs) i i I wonder if that actually brings some clarity maybe to 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 you in terms of what i think of in terms of explicit
0: instruction it does sound analogous i think the us kind of system obviously like different states different districts different this different that like it is analogous to like international schooling. i think Um, in terms of, yeah, it just classroom to classroom. I've heard Craig Barton describe it as lesson lottery, where it's just depending on, and I don't even think it matters because we're uh, the majority of my colleagues are British, but then it depends when you left Britain to become an international teacher to some extent, because like you say, the fad trads or the trad fads, whatever, like there will have been some when, you know, a teacher who's been here 40 years, a teacher who's been here 30 years, 20, 10, five, two, you know, there's a different kind of educational landscape. And also, but that's not to say that if you've been here 40 years, you could have kept up to date quite easily. So there's another kind of layer of complexity. It's like, how long ago did you leave? To what extent are you still in contact with what's going on there or globally? You know, it's not just the UK that are, you know good at these things. Australia is fantastic. Canada is apparently very good and all parts of Canada are very good, parts of Australia. So it's, again, it comes back to that checks and balances thing where it's the, 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 the inputs are so wildly different and that's being represented in the outputs in the classroom. And yeah i don't know it's tricky it's really interesting but it but it's tricky i think um if you were though like you, you gave the example before of working uh, in china i think it was and, and sharing that paper with people um like your colleagues like if 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 you were a te- international teacher listening to this and like i think there are some it's not just my mom who listens um like if you were if you wanted to seek guidance and you wanted to improve your teaching Where do you suggest teachers start with like, there's there's so many books, there's so many podcasts, so many topics, discussions, blogs, whatever. Where would you sort of start them off in terms of like, yeah, I'm a 24, 25-year-old teacher. I want to be more research-informed, depending on my subject, obviously, but where do I go tomorrow, this weekend? Where do I go?
1: Yeah, I would start the most accessible place to start is Dan Willingham's, uh, Why don't students like school? Mm. And essentially, that is just chapter by chapter answering some of the questions that every teacher has, right? Is growth mindset uh, a thing? Uh, And uh, is there a difference between uh, novices and experts? What is cognitive load and working memory, right? And what he does in that book that I love is he develops this model so you can go through all the highlights of retrieval practice, of space practice, right? Really, I think if you start with that book, he's a cognitive scientist. uh, You start to see that uh, a lot of this cognitive science stuff uh, points you into a direction. Sarah Cottingham said this, at least on my podcast. So I I, I really respect her. So I, I believe she's right. It does start to direct you into this, uh, this, this understanding that, oh, I've got to regulate attention or they won't act, they'll, they'll, they won't get the information they need. I need to make sure that they think about it. So I can't have them thinking about other things. I got to have them thinking about that one thing. Mm-hmm. I got to make sure there's lots of repetition. And you start to see through what cognitive science I think brings to education that, uh, uh, that, that that a certain teaching a uh, form of teaching starts to emerge right mm-hmm. um there's other resources too um cognitive load theory is like my main presentation thing but I've been doing explicit instruction for a while um there's a great uh there's a lot of resources on that you mentioned Ollie level has a book that I think uh does it justice greg ashman has like a teeny tiny book that you can read in like 30 minutes uh, about cognitive load theory um start with start with uh start with working memory because that is the structure where all thinking happens and it has to be processed and if it really is as limited and is fragile as i'm making it out to be the implication is we have to be very careful with how we present in, uh, information and make sure they practice it a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah, 100%. The Dan Willingham one, yeah, I, I feel quite proud of myself that that was one of the, like, the first ones that I completely agree with you that that is a fundamental text because like my wife is also an English teacher and we have to drive about 45 minutes for me to drop her at her school before I go on to mine. And sometimes like, We'll talk about um, when she can like stand to kind of stay awake in the car and listen to me rabbit on. We'll talk about like such individual minutiae things within English, and like why it should be done in that particular way. And sometimes, like, um, like I'll go and watch another teacher, or another teacher will sort of ask me for advice on something, and I find that if they don't understand that cognitive load thing, my advice is scattered on very rocky ground because they can't see the steps that I've taken to get there and it might be like eight steps so when we're talking about kind of um how to approach a particular exam question in a particular exam in year 11 it might be like okay well there's no point practicing like this because it's dependent on them understanding at least 95% of the text itself and even then there might be some hinge vocabulary in there that they do not understand and without that they're not going to be able to access it blah 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 so there's no point practicing like that okay well then how do we practice for it in the long term well we need to explicitly teach them vocabulary okay well how do we do that well I suppose that we need to and like you have this conversation and it's just slowly 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 going back to cognitive load theory and i mean you talked about it before in terms of like students with learning needs so like it's a very reductive kind of um way to describe cognitive load and i've heard uh guy claxton kind of criticize this model but i do think it's a really useful analogy that if we've got kind of like four boxes or four hands or four whatever in our head for working memory like four things that can hold on to things. Some more higher attainment students have got like six or seven. And then like students with learning needs might only have two. Like that is a such a fundamental idea to understand in terms of differentiation, lesson planning, um, everything, just the absolute foundations of like lesson instruction, I think, so I completely agree with you. And Dan Willingham's one, williams book is is fantastic for that so i I would i would second that wholeheartedly um so yeah thank thank you for that that's a great suggestion um the last question i've got here today um it is kind of like it's a bit tangential actually but um instructional coaching is obviously a big thing uh well not obviously but it is a big thing in in the uk i think again coming back to that like checks and balances thing a lot of schools feel kind of off looming over their shoulder or they're part of a trust where they, they've got to meet certain standards and blah, 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 blah. In international teaching, you don't see a lot of instructional coaching. And I wish, I wish we did. We are trying to start it up here in my school with a very small group of teachers at first, maybe eight of us. And we're going to kind of instructionally coach each other. Um, and this is going to start happening after Chinese New Year. Um, what are the most important things to consider? And prioritize at the outset for you, Zach?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I am an instructional mm-hmm. coach, and I know that, that's, that that means different things to different people. So I always like to kind of explain it. Uh, you know, instructional coaching is like an action, Like I can be a, a principal or a leader and do instructional coaching. But there are places in the world, like the United States, where uh, their schools have like one person who does most of the yeah. this coaching. So I meet with teachers on cycles, and we talk about what I observed in their lessons. We create goal. Uh, it's a lot like what a, a coach would do with uh, you know with playing soccer or basketball, right? It's it's watching the the game film together sometimes. Of their teaching, uh, it's passing them resources. Um, so that's that's what i do for most of my day i also teach a little bit but um uh so like yeah what what what's your question what do you want to know like like what, guess, what are some things that people should
0: know about this job <laughs> you know, like i guess there's like there's about i would say there's eight of us so we're self-elected we want to do this thing and we had like the briefest of chats maybe two weeks ago and essentially we're we're kind of um talking about how in terms of professional development, we've got very heavy teaching loads respective to international teaching. So we, we maybe have one free period a day. Um, and, and obviously it's quite hard to liaise across departments in terms of like coming to watch each other and we can get cover and stuff like that. But essentially, I suppose my question is, if we're going to meet maybe once a month as a little group and go and watch each other teach, In terms of developing our own personal practice and none of us are trained coaches we're all experienced teachers and some of us have been head of departments before some not that may or may not be relevant like what's the most important things to consider or like prioritize at the outset of a scheme like this would you say uh
1: the first thing i would say is you need to have an instructional focus Mm. um i I I take this actually from one of my good friends in the business, Gene Tabernetti. Uh, Basically, he he would go so far as to say that uh, instructional coaching will fail anywhere without uh, an instructional focus. And that can be very specific. Like we're looking at active participation through cold calling, turn and talks, and mini whiteboards. Or it could be a little bit more general. Like we're looking at formative assessment or we're looking at classroom management, right? But having agreed upon focus directs the discussion. Uh, and, and and sometimes it's kind of hard to get to that, right? But if we, if you can get some consensus and basically say to everyone, and now we'll, we're going to move forward only on this. We're going to narrow our focus. I think that that's real. That's really important. Um, so start with the instructional focus and you guys are going to meet together, uh, you got to figure out a way to cover for each other. And so I, I make these systems for teachers who want to do this all the time, right? Uh Create a calendar, create an Excel spreadsheet and say, okay, I'm going to cover these classes, or I'm going to call in some subs for these classes, or during your free periods, here are the ones you're going to, or pick out of a hat, this is the person you're going to meet with, meet with, you know, talk to them right now about what they're likely to see, so that mm-hmm. they can have a good idea of what they're going to see. And and, and, and I'll come in with some notes. You're going to want to lay some groundwork probably around norms. Uh, you, you know, you want this to be a positive experience. It's not something that really, uh, should feel, uh, like their move is being scrutinized or that they're being criticized, you know, for their teaching. I think instructional coaching is mostly being positive, but there's always a bit of, there's always a bit of feedback that has to be. That has to be in there, especially if you're like me, who's been there for long enough that I tell my staff every year at the beginning, I'm going to be a lot uh, more free uh, wheeling with with my feedback this year, because it's my job to give you as much as I can. And with the very limited amount of time I have with each of you, um, I would start I would start there and realize, like you just said, like none of us are instructional coaches none of the instructional coaches i knew uh i uh, were had any of this experience either we just sort of have to make it up as we go it's a right. new undefined ill-defined profession uh, it's a job that a lot of people use as a stepping stone to go to uh, they don't really take it seriously <laughs> and so i think i think, you know, um I see something you can create the model on your own. Is this is this something where we're really just gonna reflect on teaching? Or are we are we gonna kind of be a little more a little more pressure on ourselves to actually see some results? Are we come to these meetings with something to share? Or is this gonna be more conversational? You know, I think that's up to you guys.
0: Oh, well, it's really interesting, really useful. Thank you, Zach. Okay. Um, I'll definitely look up. I know I think you've um you you've yeah, uh like interviewed gene Tavanetti before right yes sir yeah i'm doing today too all <laughs> ah, right i'm pretty sure i've listened to that one i'll go back and listen to that again okay um but yeah all that remains for me to say zach is just like thank you so much for giving up um your time today it was um yeah, I think aside from my wife who has to deal with my kind of like diatribes on a on a weekly basis um, in between kind of falling asleep at, uh, in the passenger seat, it, it, it's rare to have like these big wide ranging conversations about, you know, inquiry, direct instruction, stuff like that in international teaching. So it's really, really good. But apart from that, like you're putting so much good stuff out there on like Twitter and the podcast and stuff like that. I think there's there's a nice kind of triumvirate at the mi- in the minute between like, you in um the us and and ollie Lovell in australia and craig barton in in the uk not to say they're the only people but um this is a really nice kind of global triumvirate of uh, anglophone uh, teaching advice out there so thank you very much for that thank you very much for talking to me today and yeah uh enjoy your evening i suppose
1: (laughs) hey i really appreciate it thanks so much chris